Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The Ends Report. In this episode, we're going to be exploring why the Environment Agency frontline officers are saying the regulator no longer deters polluters. We're going to look at the government's plans to make developments better for wildlife. We'll look at why the UK's new post-Brexit chemicals rules are worrying experts. And then we'll take a deep dive into what it's like when cities run out of water. And you might be surprised to learn that London gets a lot closer than you'd think. Then we'll hand over to Simon and Gareth, our very own chemical brothers, who are going to be talking about bisphenols, chemicals that can enter our bodies through our skin and have been linked to a long list of health problems. Welcome to the Eco Chamber. I'm Rachel Salvage, Deputy Editor of The Ends Report, and as usual, I'm here with journalist Tess Colley. Hello. And our editor, Jamie Carpenter. Hello. So first up, we're going to look at the big green news of the fortnight. Our biggest story, which made it into the national press, revealed that frontline staff at the Environment Agency, so those are the people that go out into the field and check on pollution incidents and go to a big industry to check that they're not polluting and they're doing what they say they're supposed to be doing, um, say they're being prevented from doing that. They're being prevented from doing their jobs and that the agency, as a regulator, can no longer deter polluters. The story came hot on the heels of the one that we published earlier in January, which revealed the agency had decided to cut back on its response to pollution incidents, which created a bit of a fury at the time too. But in this latest story, three whistleblowers have spoken to us at ENDS, all of whom had similar and very depressing stories to tell. The officers have described a culture where work to monitor, protect and improve the environment has been slashed and they can no longer do their jobs, which has left many, many people working in the front line utterly demoralised. Those are their words. Um, let's get into this a little bit. Jamie, can you tell me a little bit more about story? Yes. Well, yeah, I think, as, as you said, that this, um, this, this does interestingly come for not, not long after Sir James Bevan sent a memo to staff warning them not to leak. And, and, and it seems at the moment that the EA is almost giving the number 10 a, a run for its money as the leakiest public institution in the UK. Um, <laughs> but, but, I think, but I think there's a, there's a, there's a kind of more, more serious point, isn't there, around... This, this point around the morale of frontline officers, because I think I think when the, the EA has been coming in for a lot of criticism over recent months, um, but even its most fierce critics will say is that, that they, they they all speak very, very highly of the Environment Agency's frontline officers. Um, so the criticism is kind of reserved for the leadership and for the government for, for not, not giving, giving enough funding. So I think the questions that this will raise will be around does the Environment Agency have the resources it needs to do the environmental protection work that, that we're talking about? And, and I think the answer there probably is that it doesn't because we, we've seen that the, the, the way the agency's budget has changed over recent years where it has gone up, but that's due to work around funding stuff like flood resilience, which is obviously an important thing to fund, but it's not the environmental protection work. And, and, and that, that money is still much lower than it was, was 10 years ago. And this is, this is, this is definitely demoralising for their staff because they, they, they enter the environment agency because they, they care passionately about the environment and they want to make a difference. And if they're feeling that they, they can't do that job, then it's um, it's a very sad state of affairs. Yeah, I've been trawling through the annual reports of, for the environment agency over the last sort of 10, 12 years. And you can see very clearly that um, the government grants, so straight out of DEFRA, they rose from 880 million to just over a billion over the last couple of years. So there is a lot more money going into it. But as you say, it's going to um, flood defence and the money, the grants from the government that are going to environmental protection have slumped from 170 million in 2009-10 to a low of 76 million in 2019-20, although there was a bump up last year to 94 million. However, this still doesn't make up for the cuts that have, have come in. And what's happened as a result is that 
according to these whistleblowers, the work that the Environment Agency can charge for, such as issuing permits and things like that, has become a priority and anything you can't charge for, such as going out to visit pollution incidents, has been deprioritized, which uh, is obviously very, very uh, problematic. I think I think there is a question as well around one one of the things this kind of points to is the direction of travel, like how how is the environment agency going to function in the future? And I think I think the point around charging is an important one. And also, Sir James Bevan last week gave a speech where he he kind of talked about the future regulation and he wants industry to pay more for it. So so at the moment he says that industry doesn't pay the full cost of of regulation, and that that means that the taxpayer has to pick up the slack, and um, and also polluters don't pay for the full cost of the environmental damage that they they cause as well so so he i think he'd want to see changes there but whether, whether that kind of addresses the fundamental problems that we're discussing is is quite a big question yeah i think there are also concerns about um on those chargeable activities such as permitting when they are going out to decide whether a potentially polluting activity should be given a permit to go ahead um they have to give the benefit of doubt to the, the polluting business rather than the environment and uh that's very difficult because they say they have to be 100% clear that it's a, that it's a terrible activity and that the receiving environment can't cope with it. But along the line, they have um, their monitoring of, of the environment has dropped off as well. So they just don't have the data to prove that this potentially polluting activity is going to create terrible damage and therefore you can't do it. So there's going to be this idea that there's death, of a, death by a thousand cuts at the agency seems to be sort of um, proving true if these whistleblowers are representative and i think they are because they all came across to me separately and not as part of a, a, a group uh, tess did you you've been writing about um the environment agency and how uh, natural england might be working together in the future is, is that correct yeah so i was at an event last week where the environment secretary george eustace um he was asked about what he made of james bevan's idea for a different regulatory framework uh, where you know be harsher on polluters he very studiously avoided the question. <laughs> what he did, what he did say, was that Defra was actively at the moment looking at ways in which Natural England and the Environment Agency could be made to work more coherently together. Um, I mean, he didn't give a lot of detail on that, but what he was saying was they both currently they are involved in water quality, and it, you know it doesn't it doesn't make sense for them to be working in silos, and you know, they want to bring them together. So whatever that might mean. But that could be interesting. Do you think that's lip service given all the bad coverage or do you think that's going to turn into a, an incredible overhaul that's going to change the uh, future of the environment? Well, it's always hard to say. But I would say at the event I was at, which was an event for the Conservative Environment Network, there was a lot of talk throughout that day about needing the different regulators to work better together and for all the different policies and tools to work more coherently uh, belying the fact that currently they don't and that things sort of happen. Um, the deputy chief of Natural England said last week that, you know, does it make sense to be having a different setup for how we should plant trees in regards to timber and having a different policy for how we do it to regenerate woodland? It doesn't really. It should all be coming together because nature obviously doesn't have much heed for policy. Hmm. Interesting. I wonder if that's going to... Um be something that would be reflected in the way that the environment agency then backs that up with more more boots on the ground so i think that's what everybody's well concerned concerned about and um i mean one of the whistleblowers has said that the reduction in their enforce, enforcement activity if they're not going out to these pollution incidents and they don't have the people to do it then it's going to embolden people to break the law because they know there's not really a strong police force out there watching over them 
unable to take any significant action against them. Um, and those are the, the words of the uh, uh, the Environment Agency officers who say that the uh, agency can no longer deter polluters, which is a really sad state of affairs. But let's uh, watch this one and see if things get better. Our second story is around net gain, which is a new approach that was set out in the Environment Act 2021 that will obligate developers to create at least a 10% gain for biodiversity when they're creating new developments. It's been talked about for years now, but finally the government has published its plans for consultation. And Tess, you've been looking at this. Can you set out exactly what the plans are? Yes. So overall, the plan is, is that from 2023, developers will be obliged to create a 10% gain in biodiversity or nature uh, on whatever site they build on. So um, wherever they build, they they have to increase the amount of net gain, not just mitigate for whatever is is destroyed. Yeah. Um, this is quite a big cornerstone of the government's plans to uh, reach big targets like to protect 30% of the country for nature and to help species recover, halt the decline uh, of nature. However, it's it has some critics and some people have come out in, in the wake of the consultation saying, you know, there's not enough detail and stuff about how it will be monitored, how will you mm. make sure that developers, exactly. you know, are doing what they're meant to be doing, mm-hmm. especially when this is going to be run out of local councils and local councils, you know, they've had funding stripped for them for many years. Very, very, very few councils these days have a in-house ecologist. Yeah. And the government did announce some funding when the consultation came out, about four million for local councils. But I think when that's actually... When you look at what that means for the 400 plus That's councils, not a lot of money, is it? It's, it's very little. I don't think I saw somewhere it doesn't pay for a full-time ecologist yeah. um, per council. So I think more cash will be needed. And there have been a few concerns about, you know, you mentioned um, measurement, um, you know, the calculations, biodiversity calculations, and then who's going to police it. It does sound very, very high level at the moment. I mean, has there, has there been no word on, you know, how it's going to, function on the ground. I know there are c- companies out there like Environment Bank, there's also Natural England, they can, you can do that kind of oversight role, but but do they actually have the capacity to do that? Well, <laughs> I, I dare say not. I mean, at the moment, there have been all sorts of stories. We've reported them on ENS report about, you know, Natural England's been not meeting its targets for reaching out to local councils to provide that advisory uh, capacity and I've been speaking to some people at Natural England who, you know, they say that their own issues with funding um, and resources is affecting how many people are are able to go out and perform those sorts of frontline roles. Mm. Um, There is this talk of a biodiversity net game register where people, where where companies who are offering biodiversity credits or units and that sort of thing would have to um, be on this register. It will be verified is the idea and so you know it would to be checked against that but there's there's not not a lot of detail and some a lot of people are calling for more transparency on that uh, jamie what do you find interesting about the new consultation that's just been launched there are a few things i mean i think i think it was the people were waiting for quite a while for this consultation i think it was promised in the the autumn and now it's obviously finally come out just after after the new year and there are a few bits of clarity. So I think one, one of the interesting things was around exemption. So there was a bit of, um, I think the initial proposals proposed that um, brownfield sites would be exempt from the biodiversity net game requirements. But there had been some pushback because people say that, that quite rightly that there are brownfield sites that do have um, ecological value. So um, yeah. DEFRA is no longer proposing that those should be exempt from the requirement. Okay. Um, and there's another, another new measure is a requirement for 
on-site biodiversity gains to be secured for delivery within 12 months of the development being commenced, which is is a change. So I think that 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 might have implications for developers needing to get these things up and running quickly. And I think the other, the other thing that's interesting is it kind of tells us more about the timing of all this. So so we, we've we've known for a while now that the biodiversity net gain requirement for most developments were coming to force two years after the Environment Act got royal assent, but we didn't know when it would apply for nationally significant infrastructure projects so so these big infrastructure schemes and and the consultation makes clear that this should apply no later than 2025 so it's still still a way off but but not yeah not a million miles off and there's also a some transition arrangements for small sites so those i think there's a bit longer for those so that they they've got up until november 2024 to to prepare for the requirements Okay, well, that's interesting. Mm. An interesting point on the nationally significant infrastructure projects is that there is a suggestion in the consultation that in cases where they might not be able to make the full 10%, they may be given a little bit of wiggle room on that, which is that could be a bit of a can of worms potentially, because by what measure will they be able to provide less or deliver less? And it was quite a big deal when it was announced that they would have to um, produce a 10% gain. So 10% increase in biodiversity and nature in general, unless you can't. And, <laughs> and if you can't, then somewhere yeah. between zero and nine. Okay, <laughs> we'll have to go come back into that one and see what that figure actually uh, ends up becoming. And the final story for Big Green News today is about the regulation of chemicals. So before Brexit, the UK used to be part of EU REACH, which was the European Union system of chemicals rules. And the main aim of the REACH regulations uh, is to protect humans, wildlife and the environment from the threat of chemicals, but at the same time not undermining the competitiveness of the uh, chemicals industry. But now we're on the outside of the block. Uh, the UK government has had to create its own very, very similar system at huge expense. And as you can imagine, there are lots of problems associated with that. It's one of those rare moments where green groups and the industry find themselves on the, on the same side. Um, they worried that the UK system doesn't have a great deal of capacity to match the EU's and that without access to the EU chemicals agency's massive chemical safety database, things are going to be much, much slower. And it seems like we're already falling behind. Jamie, can you uh, bring us up to date on this? Okay, so this is an area where we are really starting to see some post-Brexit divergence. And I think it's, it's safe to say that campaigners are a bit alarmed by what they've seen for the government in the last month or two. And in fact, they're they're saying that our approach is ignorance-based in comparison to the EU's, <laughs> EU's doing it the science-based way, and we're going with the ignorance-based way. But um, so so I think that so the signs are I think that the, the UK is already showing less willingness to regulate than the EU in this area, and that there's been some delays that have been announced, and also some signs that that we're going to diverge in this area as well, which have caused a bit of um, a few eruptions in the to Christmas. Mm. I think one of the most alarming things that we've fallen behind on some substances of very high concern, which are those kind of chemicals which are carcinogenic, mutagenic, reprotoxic, persistent, bioaccumulative, all these kind of exciting words. So the EU is adding new substances to their uh, list of um, what's called a candidate list, which obliges companies to um, and deliver more information on how they're using their safety and can also put them in line for an eventual phase out. But the UK appears to be sort of scrambling up. So we haven't put these on any kind of list yet. And it, it looks like the concerns about capacity might be well founded. Yeah. And I think I think there's also a thing around um, under the, the DEFRA proposals that companies will not be 
obliged to submit information on substances of very high concern, um, but but will be allowed to do so on a voluntary basis. So, <laughs> and obviously, campaigners are not particularly happy with that, and they, they they kind of warn that if we rely on voluntary data submissions, that will almost certainly see hazardous substances falling through the the cracks. So, if you're standing beneath those cracks, it's probably not a very good place to to be. No, I think you know. Well. And what could go wrong with an ignorance-based voluntary approach to regulating chemicals? I just, I can't see why anybody should be concerned on any level. Yeah, it's the uh, sunlit uplands of, of Brexit once again, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is basking in that sunlight. And now we're going to go back to Top of the Poops by popular demand. It's our quiz that is becoming a regular fixture, which I'm not sure is a good thing. But Jamie's prepared some questions for us, and Tess and I cannot wait to find out what's in store. Yeah, I'm really, really sorry for bringing this back again. Um, but... <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> I'm not really, no. It's actually the most no. fun bit of the podcast to prepare for, yeah. so I'm not, not that sorry. Um, so some, something slightly different this time. We've looked at um, sewage data for the last two instalments Top of the Poops, and now... We've got some bathing water stats to look at, which is, I suppose, on a similar topic. So, and our listeners might have seen this week that, or last week, that the the government has put out a uh, press release about ninety nine percent of English bathing sites meeting the required water quality standards, which which sounds on the on the face of it like a really good news story to celebrate. Um, so they've had a go at, at putting out some good spin on this, but actually, um, there's a bit more than meets the eye when you look at the stats. Um, but anyway, the fir- first question is, there are only four bathing waters rated as poor in 2021. Any, any guesses as to where they might be? Uh, can I guess? Yeah. I'm just going based on um, the, some of the news stories that we've been writing. It's got to be something to do with southern water, which makes me think of that Chichester Harbour. Uh, oh, I don't know if it's a bathing water, though. Oh. It's not Chichester Somewhere Harbour. around there in that area. No. no. Okay. No. No. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Tess? Is this bathing just in the coastal waters, or are we, are we counting? There's inland the ones as well. There are some inland ones, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know the answer. Damn it! It's the river, the river wharf bathing Damn site. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is one. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so that's one. So that's um, that's one of them. Yes, and the other, the other three are coastal. So, mm. um, mm. should I should I put you out of your misery, or you want to have more? <laughs> um, I agree with Rachel. It's got to be around that that part of the Kent coast. Is the one around the Kent Coast? It's not. Isn't that no. that's where the Margate? Okay. No. Right. So, so we've got. The, I didn't the, think yeah. there was. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, anyway, so, so the. I thought that's what you were saying. So the three other ones. There's there's um, Western Maine, which is Western Supermare's sort of sandy sandy beach. So that's that's poor. So you shouldn't really be swimming there. Um, Colour coats in Tynemouth and oh. um, Heacham, which is in Norfolk on the on the Wash. So they're they're the kind of with the wharf. They're the four that are rated as poor. The bathing water statistics aren't particularly robust, though. Um, I think we've written a few times in the past about how the monitoring regime for these sites is pretty thin. They only measure the uh, quality during the bathing water season, which is a couple of months, two or three months in the summer, and they only do sort of a couple of tests. So to say that that's representative in any way and that that those couple of tests could actually tell you whether that's a good quality site or not um, seems a little bit mad. Yeah, to me. When you look at the the data, there's a few other things that that are interesting. So there were there were more there were more sites that were designated poor in 2019 than 2021. There weren't any designations in 2020 because there wasn't any monitoring done due to the pandemic, which was not the yeah. case for a lot of Europe. 
Um, but there were, I think there were seven designated as poor in 2019, but actually mm. a number of those have actually since been de-designated, so they're no yeah. longer showing up in the stats. So you've got, I think there's one at Clacton, there's Ilfracombe in Devon and Burnham-on-Sea, they're not, not far away yeah. from Western Supermare. Um, so that that's kind mm. of possibly having an impact on, on, the, on the data. And then I think the other thing to do is, is the other thing that's interesting is looking at the kind of comparison with what's going on in Europe as well. So, so although 99% compliance with this sounds great, when you actually look at the proportion of bathing sites that are rated excellent in England, it doesn't actually compare that favourably to EU member states. So, yeah. um, so I, I figure I think it was 70.7 for England, 70.7% 2021. But actually, if you look at Euro- European figures for 2020, only... Romania, Hungary, Latvia, Estonia, Bulgaria, Slovakia, and Poland performed worse. So, mm. not a yeah. pretty picture. Can't take these things at face value, can yeah. you? How many inland bathing water sites? I know, we, is it two? Is it three? And, and on that basis, we're quite far behind the rest of Europe, aren't we, in, in having so few inland bathing waters? Yeah, I think there are fewer than 10 in England. So the wharf at Ilkley is one of them. There, there's a serpentine in, in Hyde Park, probably the most known of them. But but um, yeah, there's there's loads more in, in Europe. I don't know, for a final, final top of the poop's question, can, can you guess how many how many uh, inland bathing waters France has? Oh, plenty, I should think. Um, hundreds. I've seen the stats somewhere in the hundreds, I think. 300. I'm say I'll go 250 then. <laughs> Wow, it's actually one thousand two hundred and seventy-three. Oh, there you go. wow! So Gosh, a bombshell many to, hundreds. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I put such a shame, and we have what ten? Something Gosh. like ten. I think. I think there were sixteen across the UK in twenty twenty. Mm. So, so yeah. But I think so. The fewer in England than that. Granted, it's a bigger country, but not that much bigger. <laughs> not a thousand. Same times. population. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, well, sticking with water, our deep dive section coming up next explores what happens to cities when they come close to day zero, which is a time when the demand for water outstrips its supply. Several cities have come very close, including London, and the problem is far from being solved. This next session is pre-recorded, so it may sound a little bit different. Uh, We're recording from home at the moment as a result of the lockdown soon to be lifted, but hopefully we'll all be back together in the studio soon. Now into our deep dive segment, we're going to talk about day zero. So this is a time when a city or a country or an area, a region runs out of water in the sense that demand for drinking water outstrips supply. Now, this is something that we are closer to than you probably think. With population growth, economic growth and climate change intensifying weather, meaning that we have uh, rainfall is set to decrease. The Environment Agency says it's going to decrease by about 15% by the 2050s and 22% by the 2080s. So unless we do something about water supply, there's not going to be enough to go around. The Environment Agency has also said that by 2100, the country will see increasingly hot temperatures, so we'll be getting above 35 degrees and sometimes 40 degrees C in the southeast. Jamie, this doesn't sound good, so it's day zero, but I think it has another name. Yes, so Sir James Bevan, who is the, the Chief Executive of the Environment Agency, has been um, using the phrase, the jaws of death, to describe this scenario, which is slightly alarming. Subtle. <laughs> Subtle, yeah. <laughs> he used it in the speech. He did actually um, admit in the speech towards the end that he'd, he'd used it because he, 
wanted to grab people's attention, which I think it's fairly safe to say that he did. He did. He did. So, uh, um, and, and what, what the Jaws of Death refers to is um, some lines on, on charts that you see from water companies. So you, you have one line that shows water demand going up. You have a situation where at the moment where you have more homes being built, more businesses being formed. Um, so that line's going up. You've got a second line, though, that's showing the water available to meet those needs, which mm. is which is going down due to climate change. And and um, I think the way that James Bevan put it was that some way out, possibly 20, 25 years out from now, those lines will cross. And that, that's the, the point where we, we effectively run out of water, where we don't have enough water to meet those needs. Yeah. I think he said that we're going to need 3.4 billion extra litres of water a day by 2050 to meet the needs of people for drinking and washing, but also for industry and agriculture and energy, because obviously it's crucial to all of those sectors. Welcome to drought in the Anthropocene, he said, which yeah, I think exactly. I think he was quite enjoying exactly. himself in these speeches. Yeah. yeah, but I think I think it's interesting that this, this is certainly one area where the Environment Agency is really wanting to, to get, get on people's radars. Um, and I think I think the, the language that James Bevan uses is very, very strong about this stuff. He described the, the combination of climate change plus growth as an existential threat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the reports I was looking at from Thames Water, which is from a year or so ago, they were saying that Londoners could look forward to demand for drinking water outstripping supply. I think that was back in 2020, uh, by somewhere between 24 million and 174 million litres every day at some undefined point. But obviously that didn't happen, but maybe it did and they were tankering in water from other sectors. So we're not actually mm. sure how they managed to plug that gap or whether there even was a gap. Um, we came very close in a number of years to stand pipes, but we've been saved at the 11th hour in a number of years by a uh, you know, last minute downpour and we've managed to avoid it so far, but it, it really does seem like it's on the cards. So DEFRA, the Government Environment Department, they are trying to do some work towards reducing the amount of water that's being taken out of the environment. The abstraction licenses that are granted to people, it's a very old, shonky system. Lots of the stuff is on paper and lots of these licenses are really, really old and allow people just to take sort of unlimited amounts of water out. So they're trying to go through that and review that whole regime to tighten it up and reduce the amount of water being taken out and wasted. However, this is a really long time coming. In 2011, DEFRA's Water for Life white paper showed very clearly that something had to be done about demand and new supply had to be put in place. But that was a very long time ago now. And successive governments have promised to do something about it, but it's been kicked down the road again and again and again. And now the abstraction regime is being sort of piecemeal reviewed, which is not really what people wanted. However, they are looking at bringing it under the environmental permitting regime. So maybe things will pick up once they've done that. So, Jamie, how can demand for water be brought under control? Well, there there are a few things that that, that can be done. I think the um, in in uh, Sir James Bevan's speech, he he talked about um, pushing all the buttons to reduce demand and increase supply. And on on reducing demand, there there are there are a few things. So you, you mentioned um, abstraction reform. Um, one of the big areas is reducing leakage. So yeah. the, the kind of amount of leakage from water pipes is is it's a huge problem. Huge isn't amounts. It? So I think I think um, sort of figure Thames Water every day loses. 22,000 litres of water for every kilometre of pipe, That's which is amazing. Insane. It's insane, exactly. Mm -hmm. So you kind of fix that, then we won't have such a problem. Yeah. I mean, there's other things that, that in terms of reducing demand, things like um, more water metering, um, sustainable drainage systems. Um, and also a big one is, is finding ways to cut down on, on the water that we use as individuals. So um, in England, the average person uses 141 litres of water per day the Environment Agency thinks that 100 litres a day is, is achievable. Um, and, and they say that actually in parts of Denmark, people there use just 80 litres a day. Right. So there's, there's clearly more 
more work to be done there. And I, th- I think the um, public attitude is a, is a big thing. So I think um, keep keep banging on about what Sir James Bevan said <laughs> in his speech. But he he was saying that um, we need water wastage to be as um, socially unacceptable as as blowing smoke in the face of a baby or mm. or someone throwing a plastic bag in the sea. And and it, uh, it, it quite literally isn't at the moment. Yeah, I think maybe we could take a few lessons from some of the cities that have experienced it or at least got very very close to it. So. Chennai in India is one of them. Um, I was speaking to someone who lives in the city and who lived there during the drought. And essentially, he said it brought the rich and the poor to their knees. Uh, the, the streets were full of tankers, but it, but it really wasn't enough. People were queuing uh, for a really long time to try and get the water. They couldn't wash anything. So they were getting um, lots and lots of stocks of leaves in from villages because they, you know, they couldn't dirty anything because then you couldn't wash it. And they said it was a really, really terrible time. They could see that the reservoirs were completely empty and there were kids playing cricket where it should be you know, full of water and it was a very frightening time. Um, and he says the price of water skyrocketed. So obviously those with more money didn't suffer as much as those with less money. And it just sounded like a really terrible time. And the same thing happened in Cape Town. Again, the people with less suffered more. There were lots of people living in slightly more affluent areas that they got companies to come around and dig boreholes in their own gardens so they could actually still get water from the same source that they were not really allowed to get water from. But that was one of the, the way around it. But even so, the situation got so bad that they were, you know, they had to have two minute showers and they went down to 90 second showers and he was showering in a bucket and then had to store all that grey water. It, it got to a, a really, really terrible state, but we don't hear too much about it here. And I think because we're a drizzly, rainy sort of damp old island we don't think it could happen but the southeast is very dry and actually the northwest as well because even though it rains so much there's no groundwater storage so that, that runs out of water faster than you think too yeah the thing that's worrying is although we, we've had these warnings from the environment agency about this issue actually it doesn't really seem that maybe enough is being done so i think the um the government's come under sort of fairly strong criticism from the Public Accounts Committee and National or the, the, the National easy for me to say National Audit <laughs> Office about sort of um, being criticised for sort of making too little progress. I think the Public mm. Accounts Committee said that it was it was shocked to find so little progress over twenty years uh, on on leakage and on securing supplies. And I think the issue is that some of the other solutions are are quite difficult when it comes to increasing supply. So things like more water transfers between regions at the moment. Only 4% of water supplies are transferred between water companies. Um, there's other things like um, desalination plants. Um, there's one at the moment in Beckton, which provides up to 150 million litres a day. Um, and then and the other big one is um, reservoirs. We haven't built reservoirs for decades, but mm. they, they make a big difference. Yeah, they want to build one in Abingdon that would uh, provide 294 million litres a day. But obviously, that's very unpopular with the people of Abingdon. So that's going to be problematic. And it was going to take many, many years before there's a spade in the ground, let alone the project getting all its permissions in place. And mm. there's one in South Lincolnshire that, that's being planned too, but I don't know how far along that one is. Yeah. There was one in um, we, we wrote about earlier this year the, um, in Hampshire. There was this massive row over mm. an ancient woodland that was going to be destroyed. Yeah. So that one did get planning permission, but it, it does kind of show the kind of local sensitivities that can... It's never easy. Yeah, exactly. yeah, never easy. So it sounds like there's lots and lots of uh, projects in the pipeline, if you'll pardon the pun. So let's hope that we never have to meet our own day zero or never have to look those jaws of death in the teeth. Now, moving on, we've got the Chemical Brothers coming up with something to keep you awake at night. Here's Simon and here's Gareth. Thanks for that, Rachel. 
So today I thought we would discuss the wonderful world of bisphenols, a whole family of somewhat questionable organic compounds. It's now been 130 years since bisphenol A was first synthesised by a Russian chemist. As the name suggests, it's simply two phenol groups bridged by a carbon with two carbons attached either side of it. Very simple compound, really. But it was only in the 1930s that its usefulness was discovered by IG Farben, the company that supplied poison gas for the Nazis, oddly enough. Its work has discovered that the substance could be combined with another to produce epoxy resins, used to line food cans as adhesives, bonding carbon fibre for wind turbine blades, and in a whole range of other applications nowadays. Later on, it was discovered how to use them to make polycarbonate plastics, used in enormous volumes for electronics housing, window frames, card dashboards, DVDs, bulletproof grass, you name it. And it's also used to make thermal paper and inks. But we've known about problems with BPA for a long time now, haven't we? Yes. Extraordinarily enough to say, we've known for about a century. It differs by only a few atoms from diethylstilvestrol, which was used as a synthetic estrogen medication, until it was banned due to its risk of causing cancer, infertility, stillbirth and early menopause, amongst other nasty outcomes. And with hindsight, that should really have been a clue that it was not something you'd want to be exposed to. And um, unsurprisingly, compounds that have similar structures tend to have similar effects. I mean, what, why do we continue using it? Uh, it was so resoundingly useful that uh, these effects were just put on the back burner and production continued unhindered. Millions of tonnes of it are produced around the world every year, making it one of the highest volume organic chemicals. Now, as one part of a polymer, it shouldn't pose an issue. But polycarbonates are liable to decompose when subjected to acids or high temperatures, such as inside a food can or inside a hot water pipe, for example. And therein lies the problem. And that's not to mention uh, receipts made from thermal paper from which it can be rubbed directly into the skin. To the extent it was considered at all, this was all thought to be okay-ish until the mid-90s, when BPA's very weak estrogenic effect was first demonstrated from chronic but low-level exposure, much as is encountered in real life as opposed to on the laboratory bench. Estrogenic effect meaning that it was effectively disrupting our hormonal systems. Yes, the evidence that it was an endocrine disruptor continued to pile up, with EU ministers expressing concerns about exposure to BPA back in 2009. There was a wave of uh, national bans on using BPA in baby products and food contact materials around the same time, uh, followed by an EU-wide ban on BPA-based baby bottles in 2011. The European Food Safety Authority slashed the tolerable daily intake of the substance in 2015, uh, followed by an EU regulation that bans its use in uh, thermal paper. So that's receipts? Yes, quite so. Aside from being the most widely produced industrial chemical to be declared a substance of very high concern by the European Chemicals Agency, BPA is now a very rare example of a double entry. It's on the list of SVHCs, both for being an endocrine disruptor and for being toxic for reproduction. So let me just get this straight. BPA, you said it's one of the many bisphenols out there. Why has all of the focus been on BPA and not on presumably whole other ranges of BP, X, Y or Z? It was by far the largest one of the family. I only discovered it was part of a family oh, four, five, six years ago, something like that. And this family is enormous. There is bisphenol B, S, A, P, A, F. F, Z, and so on and so forth. Yes, it's an enormous family, and that's where the tale gets worse. Uh, naturally enough, industry responded to all this regulatory and public pressure by adopting uh, alternative chemicals that could escape regulatory pressure. 
But the easiest solution was simply to drop in another form of bisphenol and uh, bisphenol S or B or AF or AP or F or Z and so on and so forth. Now, as I mentioned, BPA is a very weak endocrine disruptor, tens of thousands of times less powerful than natural estrogen. So it should not come as a surprise that some of the family have a greater effect on the body. So as in we've got a situation where we've replaced BPA with potentially a, a substance with a way higher effect. Yes. Okay. Now, uh, the first attempt to analyse the whole class, uh, well, BPA and six others, I should say, was only in 2017. While BPZ had an estrogenic potency about three times worse than BPA and BPB 50% more, BPAP, I'm sorry about all these names, but <laughs> that's what they're called, folks. Anyway, BPAP had similar um, activity to BPA. BPF and BPS were somewhat less powerful. But another study that year described BPS as a potent endocrine disruptor that uh, promoted the growth of breast cancer cells. Now, alongside BPF, it's a well-used substitute for BPA. There's more. In another 2017 study, this time published uh, by Chinese researchers, um, found that BPAF's effects go beyond simply being an estrogen analogue. They reported that adolescent mice exposed to it in the womb uh, had behaviour indicative of anxiety and depression alongside greater weight gain and poorer memory. So the evidence points towards bisphenols having effects outside of the endocrine system, potentially neurological or other impacts? Yes. I mean, it's early days, obviously, but it is worrying stuff. The whole, the whole situation seems quite disturbing. I mean, this seems like regrettable substitution. Yes, absolutely. The uh, obvious conclusion is chemicals uh, really can't be considered one by one, but they have to be considered by group. Otherwise, we'll just keep on seeing more examples of regrettable substitution like this. Uh, another classic example, of course, was how uh, one form of polybrominated diphenyl ether flame retardant was taken out of circulation, only to be replaced by another. And then the same thing happening again and again. The piecemeal approach like this just does not make sense. So I can only hope that the UK chemical strategy, which I wait with bated breath, takes this on board and uh, reflects what the EU chemical strategy for sustainability is doing, taking this group approach. Isn't consultation on the UK chemical strategy due quite soon? Yes, but it depends how you define soon. Uh, it should be out within a few months at the most, I understand. Well, fingers crossed that GB regulators get their act together. Well, we're just going to have to wait and see, aren't we? Mm. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of The Eco Chamber. Thank you to our editor, Jamie Carpenter, and journalists Tess Colley, Gareth Simpkins, and Simon Pixton. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please go to endsreport.com, where you'll find loads more. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and we'll see you next week. The Eco Chamber podcast was produced by Ari Bambala from Rethink Audio.